text, and we're, we're slowly working through it. David preached on the first couple chapters, and now I'm still preaching on the first couple chapters, and I think, Lord willing, next week David's going to get into chapter 3. But who knows? God might put him back in chapter 1 or 2 again. We're just going to keep working through it because we've learned from the book of Acts that you just do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. And so we, we had a plan, and if that plan changes, we're okay with that. Um, we've mentioned the book of Acts is a book about actions or activities, um, and specifically the activities of the Holy Spirit, the activities of the apostles, as well as the activities of the church, the people of God. It's a history of how God uses ordinary people to accomplish his work, and I kind of droned into you last week to try to make sure you could get this statement, this thought in your mind that it's a story about the ordinary people of God, equipped with the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, dedicated to the Son of God, accomplishing the mission of God. That's really what the book of Acts is about. It's ordinary people like you and me being used by God to accomplish his mission. But there are some parameters. We have to be um, equipped with the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, and dedicated to the son of God. And when we have those things, God can use us to accomplish what he wants to do. Um, this book has often been used as kind of a, a handbook it's the start of the church, right? I mean, this is the first experience we have with the organized church, with this group of Jesus followers. And so it gives us some insights as to maybe what a church ought to be doing and some of the things that should be a part of a church. Um, it's not, what it's not is a step-by-step -step guide on how to be a church. It's not like do these 10 things with an equation and this will be your result. It's not, a, it's not any kind of mathematical programming. It's not a church planting manual, and it's not just this is exactly how you do church. What this is about is it's about principles and guidelines and watching how God moves and seeing how dependence upon God can accomplish his work anywhere that he takes us. Um, so we're going to go through back through a little bit of chapter two so that we can kind of get some of these principles. We've covered some theology, we've covered some background, but I want to get really practical with you this morning about what does it mean to be a church? We mentioned last week that this is a book about the kingdom of God. It opens up in the first couple of verses about the kingdom of God, and the last two verses talk about the kingdom of God. It's about the kingdom of God, so the question you and I have to ask is, what does it mean to live as a person of the kingdom of God? What does that really mean? I mean, we don't live in kingdoms nowadays, right? I mean, we don't. We, we just don't have, we don't have uh, kings and lords and we don't have, you know, we're not vassals and we don't like, well, maybe we feel like that at times, but we don't have this structure of kingdoms in our world anymore. We live in a democracy. So what does it look like to be a member of the kingdom of God? What, how does that play out? What does, it, what does it feel like? What should it look like? What did it look like? And how can it look today? And those are all the things that we want to talk about as we go through the book of Acts. So in the first two chapters, we have some activity. Um, some principles that are already in the forefront. And so we're going to answer the question, what activities should the church be doing? What does it look like to be a kingdom people? And so the first one I want to bring up, is, it seems super obvious, but I'll say it's missed by most churches. And that is, a, we need to be committed to sharing the gospel. I mean, bottom line, it's about spreading the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what we're here to do, is to share the good news of the kingdom of God. The first sermon in the book is preached by who? God, say it. Peter, thank you. 
It's preached by Peter, and it's about how Jesus is the Messiah. It's how he is the answer to what people have been waiting for, how Jesus was sacrificed as part of God's plan to reconcile people to God in a way that the law could never accomplish. It's about people reconnecting with their father through the sacrifice of the son. It's about the gospel. Now, I wanted to give a little side note here. Um, We mentioned the book of Acts as a guide, right? There's many sermons in the book of Acts. I just want to be very clear with you that none of them, none of them, would fall into the category that we have nowadays that we call verse-by-verse exposition. Not a single one of them. They would all be in the category we call topical. Now, I have people that often come up to me and say, hey, as a church, do you preach expository? Do you preach topical? And the answer is, yes, we preach the word of God. And sometimes that can show up in a form of a topic, and sometimes we prefer to go through a book like the book of Acts because it's easier sometimes to grasp the concepts of a book that way. But if you're looking at just a guideline, the book of Acts doesn't have a single verse-by-verse exposition of the scriptures of the Old Testament. It's all topical. So I just thought I'd throw that out there for those of you that are kind of um, you know, in the trenches about every preaching, every message must be expository and verse by verse. I can't find it in the scriptures, um, but it is a great way to preach. Okay, so I just want to be clear on that. It's, it's okay to preach that way. Um, just wanted to throw that out there. It's not the only sanctioned way, uh, nor is it the biblical model that we have necessarily. So the message that Peter gave was very bold. Jesus was crucified in the same town that Peter's preaching in, right? The same leaders who killed Jesus and put him on the cross are still at the temple, and they're still hanging out in the neighborhood, and Peter stands up and says, hey, that Jesus that you killed, he's the Messiah. Now, that's a message that would be hard to preach. If you're talking about being intimidated, that's a tough message to preach. He boldly stood up and told them about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and that they missed the mark, and that they crucified him. He said that Jesus was appointed by God to be the Messiah. He was then murdered according to God's plan. He was raised from the dead because he is Lord over the grave. And he offers forgiveness of sins and new life and the gift of the Spirit to all who will repent. That's the gospel message that Peter gave at his first public address to thousands of people. Thousands of people. That led to about 3,000 people coming to faith in Jesus that day. 3,000 people. Now, again, this is not if you preach this way, you'll see 3,000 people come to Christ, okay? It's not a mathematical formula. It's the Spirit of God doing something really cool through a man who's being yielded to his Spirit, and God produces the fruit, and the early church understood that. I think the church today, you and me, We should not be ashamed or afraid to tell people about Jesus. And I would say in our culture, more and more, it's becoming popular to keep religion as a personal thing and not to share it. Though we can have stores full of clothing promoting all sorts of other lifestyles and beliefs, if you mention God or Jesus, it can seem pretty hostile out there. I would say for the first time in many, many years, Christianity is facing hostility in our country like we haven't in the past. But that should not keep us from speaking. It should not keep us from sharing the gospel because part of our calling is to share the gospel. We'll probably never be, I'm not going to say never, we're probably not going to be in as much danger today as Peter was. 
when he preached. Um, but people today still need to hear that message. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 1.16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or also to the Gentile. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Can you say that? Can we say that today? Would we be willing to stand up in front of a hostile audience and say, no, the answer is still Jesus? Because our society needs to hear that. It's still the work of the church. You and I have the privilege of being the messengers for the good news and for hope. We have the privilege of taking good news to people who need to hear it. And the more I see our society, the more I see that they're looking for some good news. They're trying to find identity and they're trying to find acceptance in alternative lifestyles and in social media, and it's not working. They need to be finding identity and hope and purpose and meaning in life through the one who created them. And you and I get the privilege of being the messengers of that message. We get to share that message with others. Romans 10 puts it this way. How then can they call on him that they, uh, sorry, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they only believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? It is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Wow, we get a chance to bring a beautiful message of good news to the world around us. And that's one of the greatest missions of the church today, and one that we cannot lose sight of. When we lose sight of the gospel, we become a social club. We just become another place to hang out and meet really cool people and have some great friends that are safe to be around. And that's not all that we are as a church. It's one of the things you and I as a church get the honor of doing, and it should be our primary activity. So that's one thing. So the early church was about preaching the gospel. You're going to see that all throughout the book of Acts. It's, you're going to hear sermons from Peter on it. You're going to hear a sermon from Stephen on it. You're going to hear sermons from Paul on it. And then you're going to get into the rest of the New Testament and start reading Paul's letters. And guess what you're going to find? The same message all the way through, which is why we're going to be quoting so much of what Paul says, because he continues this message of the gospel. So that's one thing. Once people repented and accepted the gospel, what did they do with them? They signed them up for nursery, put them on the church cleaning list, made them greeters. What did they do with them? Anybody? They baptized them. They baptized them. Another thing that we get to do as a church body is to baptize people and to be baptized and to baptize others. The, re the message was repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And baptism does not forgive sins. Jesus does for those who repent. But baptism is not a means of forgiveness or salvation. It's a testimony that you have been forgiven and that you have been associated with Jesus. Here's the way that Paul puts it in his letter to the Galatians. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Now, Abraham's seed. Somebody help me out here. Those of you that kind of like the Old Testament and remember some of the stories, there was a certain symbol that all of Abraham's descendants had, something that they were going to do that would signify that they were part of Abraham's family. Anybody know what that symbol was? Really awkward subject nobody wants to talk about? Thank you, circumcision, absolutely. <laughs> Put it in perspective. Yeah, that's that, that one. Yeah, circumcision, <laughs> right? Circumcision, that was the sign that you were part of Abraham's family. 
Now, Paul approaches the church in Galatians and says, listen, once you've been baptized, you're a member of Abraham's family through faith in Jesus Christ. It's, not, it's now the new, the new circumcision, if you will, that demonstrates that we are a part of God's family, a part of Abraham's family originally, the way that God intended. Circumcision was a sign. Baptism is a, a sign, a symbol that you are associating. Now, in Acts, we have a lot of different people being baptized. Um, after the first sermon, about 3,000 people were baptized. Could you imagine? Now remember, Jesus was just crucified a couple months before. He's appeared to his disciples. His disciples have been hanging out, kind of hiding out because of the authorities. Now, Peter stands up and preaches, gains 3,000 followers, and the first thing they do is march him to one of the pools in Jerusalem and start baptizing them. If you were a Jew in that day, and you were willing to go into a pool and associate with Jesus Christ, what do you think would be the way that your family and your synagogue would treat you? We're talking about a sacrifice to publicly stand up and say, I associate with Jesus as the Messiah. Because your religious leaders just killed him, and you're now taking sides against the religious leaders. This is a big deal. And 3,000 people, could you imagine? Could you imagine going to one of the, there were some big pools. There was a pool of Bethesda, there was a pool of Siloam. There's some big pools there. And it would not be uncommon for people to go to these pools. As a matter of fact, one of my commentaries mentioned that the pilgrims that would have come to Jerusalem for the feast at Pentecost would have all immersed themselves before entering the gates of the temple complex. So they would have washed themselves in the pool before going into the temple. But now, Peter's taking them back to the pools and baptizing them in the name of Jesus. 3,000 people. This is not a, a small event. This is one of at least 11 baptisms that take place in the book of Acts. It's a big deal. Um, and it's actually the first action that every follower of Jesus can do. Like, sometimes we feel like, okay, I'm new to this faith in Jesus thing. I don't feel like I can get involved and help out a lot. But one way that you can be obedient right off the bat is when you accept Christ is being baptized. Everybody can do that. It's associating and making that statement uh, to your friends and to your family. It's a public thing, not a private thing. And if you've not been baptized as a believer in Jesus, let me or David know. We'd love to, to dunk you. It's, it's, a, it's a great privilege that we have. At the end of Peter's sermon... We kind of understand a little bit more about what faith in Jesus can do. It provides forgiveness of sins and entrance into the kingdom. And at the end of chapter 2, we understand that faith in Jesus is something that impacts what we do from that day on. It starts by bringing us into, so we preach the gospel, and when people respond to the gospel, they are entered into the family of God and into the kingdom of God, and they start changing the way that they live by being obedient to being baptized is the first step. But then what do they do after that? This is the book of Acts of activities. What is the church to be doing after they receive Jesus? In, in, our, in our culture, for the majority of Christians, it's we, we show up on Sunday mornings, we listen to the pastor preach, we put in our time, you know, that guy just won't stop. You know, we, we kind of go through the motions. Of, and I'm not saying this church, I'm saying in the church in America, in the United States of America. So often it's just a public commit, it's a public thing that we do, it's a routine that we're a part of, 
but does it change the way that we live? Should it change the way that we live? Should there be a difference in that person who's chosen to follow Jesus than any other person, even a religious or moral person? And I believe the answer is yes. And in Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 42 through 47 together. Acts 2, starting in verse 42, and then going in through the end of 47. Actually, I'll start, I'll start back in verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together, and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and properties and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joy and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Verse 42 talks about the commitment that the church had. Uh, and this is a church that's packed full of new converts, people that had a religious background but are new to this faith in Jesus and are wondering, what does it mean to live this out? And that's what a lot of the book of Acts is about. There's at least four things that are brought up in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They were new to understanding uh, of Jesus as the Messiah, and the apostles were teaching them how Jesus fulfilled the, the role of the Messiah from the Torah. They were committed to fellowship. Now, this is much more than just, you know, they hung out together. We often talk about that half hour after the service as like a fellowship time, or you can go to a church service and they can have coffee and donuts and be like a little fellowship time before the service. That's, that's just food and fun. It's, it's this much of what fellowship really is. Um, Fellowship is a lot more than that. It's about having things in common, uh, common location, uh, common activities, common meals. It's the idea of community, of actually being a family. It's more than just association. And it's expounded on on verses 44 through 47. Uh, the breaking of bread was one of the things that they were committed to. Now, there's two different views on how, what this means. The typical expression of having a meal was breaking bread. If you were to have a meal with somebody, you would break bread with them. But Jesus kind of took a normal, not a normal meal, the Passover meal, and he turned it into something different, didn't he? He started with his disciples at the beginning of the Passover, and he broke bread, and he blessed it, and he gave it to them. And so often the concept of breaking bread is associated with communion, with that Passover celebration, what we call communion. Is it communion they're talking about here, or having meals together? And the answer is yes. It's probably both. It's probably both. Um, they shared meals together for sure. We see this in a lot of New Testament passages, but we even see that in the rest of this, of this chapter, chapter 2. But it probably was also celebrating the, the remembrance, the communion remembrance, the Eucharist that, that Christ passed on. And the last thing they, they um, devoted themselves to was prayers. And we read how prayer was pivotal in the calling of the 12th apostle, right? They got, went to the upper room, they were waiting for the Holy Spirit, they prayed, they sought God's direction, and they called, uh, a 12th, they called two men and then had God choose the one from among them. 
And we're going to see that prayer is going to continue to be a, a vital part of church life. Um, so it's talking about the church collective in here. So we're talking about public prayer. We're talking about prayer as groups. Um, there would be many prayers as part of their Jewish heritage that they would still be reciting. But there are probably some other newer kinds of prayers too, because Jesus taught some new ways to pray. Um, and so they would probably incorporate those as well. I believe there's a, these are all for every generation of the church. This is what started in the church. This is where they began. Their first round of converts, they preached the gospel, people responded, they baptized them, and they committed to these things. And I believe you'll see that these are the things, at, at least some of the things, there's more, but these are some great foundational things that the church has been committed to all throughout the New Testament and should be committed to even today. So let's dive into them a little bit more. Let's talk about studying the Word of God. We actually read... Uh, Thank you for reading this morning, Craig. Psalm 119, we're reading the, the second letter of the alphabet, um, bet. And that's the, uh, like it would be our letter B, so to speak, in, in their alphabet. And we read the eight verses from that. And it talked about the importance of God's word and how God's word keeps us from wrong and how God's word satisfies us and how we should be meditating on God's word. We live in an era where the word of God, both Old and New Testaments, is more accessible than any before. In, in my phone... My little device here. I have the entire Bible in at least 12 different translations. I have commentaries. I have the Hebrew. I have the Greek. I have notes. In this, in my pocket, every day I have it with me. This is not what the, what the New Testament church had in the book of Acts. What a gift we have to live in a society in a time where we can have the Word of God with us freely. How many of you have a Bible app on your phone or tablet? Yeah, amazing, isn't it? How many of you use the internet and use sites like uh, Bible.com or BibleGateway.com for, for reading and studying? Yeah, those are super helpful too. How many of you own more than one printed version of the Bible? We are saturated as a society with the Bible. It is still the number one best-selling book. No book even comes close to selling as many copies as the Bible. And yet, and yet, in 2021, the Barna Group put out some statistics that are kind of a little bit disturbing. Um, just over one-third of U.S. adults reads the Bible once a week. So about 34% of adults in the U.S. reads the Bible once a week, which would include Sunday, right? So if you show up for Sunday service, you, you got that covered, right? Because you've read your Bible once a week. 50% read the Bible less than twice a year. 50% less than twice a year, including those that never read the Bible, which is about 29 to 30%. And in between these two extremes, we find those who read the Bible more than twice a year, but not on a weekly basis, 16%. Overall, one in six adults, so 16%, reads the Bible most days during the week. Now, the good news is that's up from 2020. In one year's time, it jumped from 12% to 16%. That could just be, you know, the way that who they polled that, that particular year. But while we have many versions and unhindered access to the Bible, about 30% of our population has never read it, and 50% of our population reads it less than two times a year. Now, maybe this is the Christer crowd, the Christmas Easter crowd, the Christer crowd, right? Maybe that's what it is, and they get it twice a year when they just go into those services. I don't know, maybe. There's another uh, statistic that I came across. 
that Bible readership varies across demographics. So I'm curious, if you were to tell me who do you think reads the Bible the most, what age group would you pick? 60 plus? You consider 70 elderly? No. I just heard that. I just want to make sure I'm understanding you clearly, Kathy, here. I'm not getting into this whole. All right. Who do you think reads the Bible the least? 20 to 25. 20 to 25 over here? 30 to 50. 30 to 50? Yeah. We could take a poll on it, but statistically, the, the most frequent readers are those age 70 and older. So, and they prefer, by the way, having a printed version of the Bible versus an electronic version of the Bible. Just throwing that out there. Right? I know. It's like, this is news, right? <laughs> the least frequent readers of the Bible, by far, are the millennials. Now, according to the census data, you can, you can define millennials a lot of different ways, but I'm just going to go off the U.S. census data. According to the Census Bureau, millennials are those born between 1982 and 2000. That age range is between 23 and 41 years old. This is the group that reads the Bible the least. That means that the future of the church is in the hands of a generation that is the most disconnected from God's word. Now, here's an interesting statistic. The majority of North Country Fellowship Church is millennials. <laughs> right? I'm not going to have you show hands, but the majority of North Country Fellowship Church is millennials. And one of the things I love about North Country Fellowship Church is that you guys don't fit statistics. You guys are abnormal. Did you know that? You're not normal. You don't fit the statistics because you guys love the Word of God, and that's awesome. You understand verses like Psalm 111.2 that says the Lord's works are great and they're studied by all who delight in them. We've been given grace through Jesus and one of the ways that we grow in that grace is by understanding him and growing in our knowledge of him and that comes through God's word. 2 Peter 3 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. So we have three small groups that are just starting up. So far, we have 32 individuals signed up, 32 adults. We average on a Sunday morning about, a, about 60 to 70 adults. It's like 50% of our adults are involved in some kind of Bible study at this point. Some are involved in more than one. And it's not too late to get plugged in. But even if you can't be a part of a small group Bible study, you can still spend time reading God's Word every day, right? right? According to these numbers, you guys are not the norm. But your generation is the least Bible literate. And they have the greatest availability of it. And I think that that says something. I think one of the reasons for the disconnect is that your generation has not experienced the Word of God lived out the way it's supposed to be. Can you agree with that? That falls on my generation. I don't qualify as a millennial. I know that's a shocker too. That's news, right? <laughs> you see, my generation built programs and not relationships. 
And it costs us a generation of people missing out on understanding who God really is because they haven't experienced God inside of relationships. And that's where the rest of this list comes in that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 2. The early church didn't just learn the word of God. They also did life together. They bucked their society and lived in a way that demonstrated true repentance and genuine love for each other. And that is what was attractive. In my generation, going to Bible college, it might have been said, and you might have heard it said, you'll, they will know, people will know that you are my disciple. People will know that you're a disciple of Jesus by your love for his word. But Jesus said it this way. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Should we love the word? We absolutely better. We better. We better make sure it's the foundation of everything we do in our lives and everything we do as a church. However, it must be accompanied by a lifestyle of love for others. If you love God but not others, then the love of God is not in you, the scriptures say. This is harsh teaching right here. 1 John 3.10, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. I mean, it's like, okay, let's just throw some black and white stuff out there. Whoever does not do what is right is not God's, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. Whoa. You can have a PhD in theology and not love your brother or sister. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, 1 John 4.20, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he, can't, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Our theology must be married with our relationships. Our beliefs must flow into the lives of the people around us. They're inseparable. The early church was devoted to the apostles' teachings, but they were also devoted to each other. And they were committed to what we would call doing life together. The Greek word here is koinonia. And it means to have things in common, to participate together. We call this doing life together. It means sharing everyday activities with each other, spending time together. Now, there's a big push in churches to have a lot of activities, isn't there? We can be super loaded up on activities. Remember, this week is going to be insane with activities as a church body. Because we have a Monday night group, we have a Tuesday night group, we have a business meeting Wednesday night, we had youth group on Friday last week, we have church today. It's like it's going to keep going, it seems like. We can be really busy. I think that's part of what has left um, people disillusioned with the church. We've replaced people with programs. And true fellowship has been pushed out by busyness. Obviously, programs and studies can be helpful, but community is created by doing life together outside the walls of our buildings. If, if you just attend on Sunday morning, you will not experience Christian community. Can, can we say that? If you're not getting together with other people on a regular basis and being involved with other people, you're experiencing a glimpse of what you could have, but you're missing so much. Because community comes from doing life together. A lot of life together. I like to put it this way. You're a community when you've been around each other long enough to annoy each other, like family. How many of you get along with your family all the time? Do you still love them? Welcome to the church. 
we have to fight the hermit isolationist mentality that's so prevalent in our society and embrace the idea of a rich, full life together. And one of the easiest ways to begin doing life together is to select some things you already do and just invite others to join you. It's really easy. Um, some of you have children who are involved in uh, musicals or in sports and other events and programs. Really easy to say, hey, we're going over here to do this. You want to join us? Go do an event together. Um, some of you do game nights, which is really cool. All right, grab some more friends from the church body and do some game nights together and just get to know them a little bit more. Uh, we've had a lot of interesting events over the last year. We had a, a um, I guess I would call it almost like a deck coronating. Um, there was like a deck coronation. There was a brand new deck was built and it's like, come celebrate the, the, our new deck. And so we all just came and sat on their deck and, and just had an evening together of hanging out. It's like, okay, cool, right? Um, activities that you like to do, walking, biking, fishing, hiking, um, going to concerts, pumpkin chunking. You know what that is? They launch pumpkins out into the St. Lawrence River. Just find an event that you like to do and just grab a couple more people and say, hey, let's go do this together. You're going anyway. Why not go with other people and make it an event where you can build relationships? Um, any of you here ever eat dinner? <laughs> what about second dinner, right? So um, would a few more mouths make a big difference at a table as a general rule? Most of us are in a financial position where we could afford to feed one more person at the same time that we're feeding ourselves. Maybe even more than that. How easy is it just to say, hey, what are you doing for dinner? Come on over. I've known people who have set aside Sunday afternoons before. And Sunday afternoons are their afternoon to invite people over. And they'll come out, they would come out to the Sunday service, look for somebody that they never met before, and go, what are you doing today? Why don't you have lunch with us? <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's going to go over big. You would be amazed at how many people just showed up and went to dinner, went to lunch with them. It was awesome. And those people immediately felt connected to somebody and started to build community from their first Sunday here. Have a meal together. But they didn't just get together. They also met each other's needs, and I think that's pretty important. They participated in that way as well. James says this about, about meeting each other's needs. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and, you, and one of you says to them, well, go in peace and stay warm and be well fed, that's kind of our way of saying, I'll pray for you. That's what we would say today. But you don't give them what, they, what the body needs. Well, what good is that? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. We're talking about the activities of the church. And when there's a need, are we meeting those needs? And I'm going to say this too. We often don't know what the needs are because we're not connected to each other in the form of community, right? And nobody wants to admit that they have a need. But I'm telling you, when you're around somebody all the time, you know when they have a need. You can just see it on their face. What's going on? What, can we help? Going to help anyway? You're going to get frustrated with me. I don't care, right? Because that's what community and family does. The early church knew about needs because they spent time together and they were in fellowship with each other. So I want to ask some very specific questions here. What are some things that you could easily invite others to join you doing? If you were to look at your calendar, look at the things that your life, that you're part of, whether it's grocery shopping, maybe you love, how many love grocery shopping? Judy loves grocery shopping. If you, if you hate grocery shopping, go with Judy, right? Find something you love that you love doing, just invite somebody else along with you. What's one thing that you could easily invite someone else to join you with? Another question might be, what do you need to free up in your life to be available to join others or to meet someone else's needs? 
This is a harder one for me. Being bivocational and having a very busy schedule, it's tough to balance life with family, with, with my wife, making sure she gets the time that she needs, and also with the church family. But it's important that we try to do all, that we have that time, more important than other things that we do. Um, you know, maybe we have to give up binge-watching you know, Netflix for a little bit. Maybe. It'll still be there when you're done. Well, there you go. Pizza and a movie night. Binge watch together, right? As long as you take a break and talk to each other every once in a while, that's a good idea. Um, so this is a hard one for me. Uh, so that's one of the things. They, they had, did life together. They also ate meals together. This is an easy one for me. Aside from all the evidence of, and by the way, there's some great websites. I'm going to put the notes on the, uh, online with the sermon. There's a really cool article um, that had some great stuff in it on a website called The Scramble. And they talked about the, the evidence from all sorts of different universities and other studies that have been done of the value, mental, social, physical benefits of eating meals together. And yet, statistically, the number of people eating meals together is declining. So even though we know that it's, it's better for us, regardless of the spiritual aspect of it, we still see it less and less and less of people having meals together. Um, eating meals together is a great way um, to spend time together and a great way to get to know people. Uh, if you really want to get to know somebody, eat, eat meals with them. Um, I think soup is a great meal to eat with people if you want to get to know them, especially if they have a beard. Something about a beard and soup, you can't eat soup without experiencing it all the way down your chin if you have a beard. I don't know what that is, but it's, it's, I can hit my mouth every time, but somehow my beard manages to latch onto the soup too. Eat a meal that's messy. Get, eat wings. Get your fingers all sticky. Find out who's got issues with that, you know, and then just enjoy. Some of you do, right? You're going to cut it with your knife and not touch your fingers. That's okay. Experience meals together. You learn a lot about people. Jesus did this a lot. Um, matter of fact, he was known as a guy who ate with tax collectors and notorious sinners. Not just, not just like bad people, little bad people, like notoriously bad people, right? Matter of fact, if, if you got tagged with the same crowd that Jesus got tagged with, most churches would disassociate with you. Luke chapter 7, verse 34. Jesus is addressing the religious leaders that are, that are confronting him, and he's like, listen, John came and he didn't eat or drink, and you said he has a demon. The Son of Man comes, eating and drinking, and you say, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard, and he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I guess if you're going to pick one, I'd rather be in the Jesus pool than the John pool because I enjoy eating, right? I'd rather not go without like John did and eat locusts and wild honey, right? So the Son of Man was known as a person who hung out with tax collectors and notorious sinners. He hung out with prostitutes, and he hung out with unclean people who had diseases, and he touched them when nobody else would. Jesus ate meals with these people. That was not flattery, but at the same time, I think it was. It wasn't meant to be flattery. Even the Father had meals with people. Matter of fact, Exodus chapter 24, I love Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11. The, they're in the wilderness, and they're going up on the mountain to meet with God. And Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel beneath his feet was something like pavement made of lapsus lazuli, and the sky, and the, as clear as the sky itself. 
And God did not harm the Israelite nobles, even though they saw him, and they ate and drank together. Could you imagine having dinner with God? I don't know, I think I'd be too nervous to eat. But they had a meal with God. Meals were used to demonstrate hospitality, to celebrate special events, to seal covenants, and to build relationships. This was a covenant dinner on that mountain. When you invite someone to eat with you, especially at your home or your apartment, you're inviting them to connect with you. You're opening up yourself to them. Meals really help people connect and bring people together. Um, you invite somebody into your front porch or your dining or your, your foyer, it's one thing. When you bring them into your home to your table, you've brought them into your house. It's not just a physical thing. It's an emotional and a mental thing as well. And I think this has been lost in a lot of today's culture. Not only is the family meal less frequent, but having company over is even less frequent than that. Right? We eat fast food, we come home, we, we binge watch, we go to bed, we get up and do the next, the next thing the next day. Having company over is not a, a huge thing in our society today. We're missing out on a lot. Oh, you're missing out on so much laughter and conversation, even collaboration. I love watching the busyness in the kitchen before a meal when everybody's like, what can I do to help? And you're like, I oh, just go do this, do this, do this. It's like, it's like organized chaos. And then when the meal's done, usually there's people that are like, oh, let me pick this up, let me pick this up. Oh, can I help with that? That, that collaboration of working together on that meal also builds relationships. So I want to ask you a question on this meals thing. Is there one night a week or even every other week that you could open your table to someone else? And would you? Maybe you have a busy week, like work week, and you need to pick like a weekend. Maybe it's just like every other Sunday afternoon or something when you've got time to relax and watch the football game. So you watch the game, eat some pizza and wings or something, and hang out with somebody. Open up your home, maybe once a week. The last thing was that they prayed together. Um, and while this is obvious, it's not always accomplished. There used to be a time when churches had weekly prayer meetings and the church collective would come together to pray. If a church does still have this, the majority of them that I've seen have the same handful, maybe two, three, four people that come out every week and faithfully pray, even in churches of hundreds. Some churches have prayer breakfasts. Some have a time on Sunday mornings where the, while the music team is practicing. Um, I remember a, a service that we used to go to where while the music team was practicing, there was a group in the basement of the building or one of the rooms of the building that would get together and they would be praying for the service that Sunday, which is just a really cool thing. Um, we can see that the, while the disciples are with Jesus, they asked him everything. That makes sense, right? He's physically there. I mean, why would you... If you want to know something, just talk to him. He's right there. When Jesus left, we all of a sudden notice there's a lot more dependence upon prayer and talking to the Father and, and spending time in prayer because Jesus wasn't physically with them. And that makes sense too. When Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he gave them a model prayer, right? How many of you have memorized the, we call it the Lord's Prayer, right? Well, there's a shortened version of it that I like because I have a short memory. So this one's a little bit shorter, but it covers a lot of the bases. in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. He said to them, Whenever you pray, say this, Father, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. I like it because it's short, but it still covers all the bases, doesn't it? It really does. 
The focus on our prayers ought to be acknowledging God as supreme. He starts out and says, Father, what? Your name be honored as holy, set apart as supreme, as above all else. And then he acknowledges the kingdom of God, your kingdom come. Then trusting in God for provision. We have to be honest with ourselves as our, part of our prayer, recognizing that no matter how hard we work, the fact that we have a job and where that money comes from ultimately is from God. Asking for forgiveness and then ask, asking for help to forgive others is important. And then lead us not into temptation. Help us to live holy lives and avoid temptation. Most of the prayer meetings I have attended seem to focus more on physical problems, right? We pray for this person who's in the hospital and this person who has this health issue, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But that's usually about 95 to 98% of our prayer meetings. I think we need to make our prayers focused more on God's kingdom than our own. And, and acknowledging God's sovereignty and not just our desires. And while a formal collective time of prayer is wonderful, getting together with one other person or a small group is also very special. <laughs> it doesn't have to be everybody in the church together. But getting together with others to pray is so powerful. For those of you who struggle memorizing scripture, anybody else in here? Okay, I've got a verse for you, and I promise you you can memorize this one. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It actually takes longer to say the reference than it does the verse. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. In the NLT, it says this, Never stop praying. <laughs> Even I can memorize that one, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.17, never stop praying. And that's a command for us as a body, not just as individuals. So I guess the other question to follow up on this one is how can you be praying more? And who could you pray with this week? If prayer is something that the church needs to be involved in doing, are you doing it? I would say that they are, uh, the, the challenges of prayer for me have to do with my brain. I have a hyperactive brain. Um, I think if I, was, if I was raised in this generation, I would have been classified with at least four different disorders. But ADHD probably would have been one of them. So I'm an adult that has never been classified but struggles with ADHD. And I'm also a workaholic. So the hardest part for me when it comes to prayer is getting my mind to be quiet enough that I can actually focus on God long enough. Because as soon as I sit down and I'm quiet and talking to God, my mind starts racing with all the things that I need to be doing and all the things that I want to get done. And it's a real struggle for me. I don't know about you, but it's a struggle for me. But these are things that are important and we have to figure out how to make them disciplines, part of our lives. Six things. These six things are a quick summary of what the new converts in Jerusalem were committed to. And the end of chapter 2 gives us even a bit more insight because it rehashes them a little bit. We're just going to read through them quickly, in verse, starting in verse 40 through. Um, a deep... Uh, get the right. Okay. They worshiped together at the temple each day. Oh, I gotta, guess I've got to go back. Sorry. So everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. I have a different version there. That's what's throwing me off. 
Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any has need. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. And they ate their food with joy and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. They had all things in common. We talked about this being fellowship. They met each other's needs, that koinonia. They ate food together. They broke bread. They met in the temple. They were devoted to teachings. We see this just kind of expounding on what they did. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Does this passage mean that we need to have no other outside activities other than those inside the church with brothers and sisters, and we need to get together with our church family every day? That's what the church did. They got together every day. Is that what we should be doing today? What do you think? I'll say no. You're like, I don't know, what to, I don't know how to answer this. I don't want to get in trouble. I'll say no. We need time with people but we need time with people who do not know Jesus. We need time with people who do know Jesus. We need time away from all those people, too, to spend time with our families. But we need to make sure that we are prioritizing time with all of those groups. This group met together every day. They were in a unique situation where they were away from home, away from their jobs, here for a feast in Jerusalem, and they had their main agenda was just this event. And you can have events and seasons in your life where you can dedicate to just 100% doing something like this. But that's not a sustainable way of life. And the church is going to spread out from here. You're going to see it's not what they're going to continue to do all the time. Does this mean we're not supposed to own anything? That we're to sell everything that we have to give to the needs of others? Is that what this passage is saying? What do you think? No, I don't think so. However, it does mean that we shouldn't be stingy with our possessions and we should be willing to give up things to help those that don't have what they need. We covered this a lot in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 and 6. Does this mean that if we do these things and we commit to meeting all the time and praying all the time and, and being in community with each other, that God will add new people to the church every single day? No, it's not a mathematical equation or formula. God causes the increase, and he can choose to do that, but it's his decision. It's not a formula. It's God's church, not a math problem. This radical new lifestyle was so contagious that people saw it and liked it. In verse 47 of chapter 2, it said that they enjoyed favor with all the people. People looked at the church family and had good things to say about it. When was the last time you heard people going, oh, that church over there, they're a great group of people in our media. I mean, when was the last time our media boasted about a church, right? You're talking about thousands of people in a city that crucified Jesus just months before, and all these people are looking at these Jesus followers, and they have nothing but good things to say about them because of the way that they're living. It was attractive, and because of that, more people were being saved each day. The preaching of the word and the attractiveness of the lifestyle. The church still needs to preach the good news of Jesus, and people still need to respond those of us that have responded should, make, should be marked by a commitment to God's word, to fellowship, to community, to prayer. And while this is not an all-inclusive list, it sure is a great start. In my opinion, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the abundant life in John chapter 10, verse 10. Are we familiar with that passage? Jesus says, listen, hey, the thief 
He comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I, he said, I've come that you can have life and that you can have it abundantly. And that abundant life is reconnected with our Father and understanding relationships with each other that we cannot have apart from the Spirit of God working through us. Life in Jesus is abundant because it restores us to our Father and it empowers us to live with each other in a way that honors God. This is our calling and it's our gift from God. And I am so thankful that this family at NCF, I'm thankful for the years that we've had together creating community and living in community. I'll be straight with you. We're not always great at it. Sometimes we're just downright bad at it. But we try. And we keep trying to love each other. And we continue to try to find ways to connect with each other. And it's my prayer that each of us will renew our commitment to these things and be the church community that demonstrates God's love to the world around us. The New Testament church had no clue what it meant to be a church. But through the strength of God they, and the Spirit of God, they lived out an incredible testimony of God and His love. You and I are still the New Testament church. And we get the same privilege today in our culture, which is why we're here. And I'm looking forward to what God's going to do with each of us as we live that way. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your love and your grace. Thank you for providing a way for us to be restored to you through our Savior. Thank you for providing a way for us to love each other the way you love by giving us your spirit. Father, help us to live in a way that honors you, to be committed to your word, your teachings. Teach us how to truly care for each other, to have fellowship with each other, to pray with each other, to eat meals together. Father, make this type of lifestyle such a part of our lives that when it's not there, it's so obvious that we're missing something. And help us to experience the fullness of life that you've provided by bringing us into your kingdom and making us part of your family and family with each other, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.